Now we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, and in it we look at, this is about the teaching of Jesus and how within his own hometown, as Andrew was explaining to the children, uh, Jesus was not accepted, uh, or his teaching was not accepted, and we're going to look at how that impacts upon us. Before we do that, we're going to read a related passage, I think, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13, and we're through into chapter 2 and verse 12. And this is a, a passage that is about God's Word and Jesus Christ and whether we accept or reject Him. Um, does anyone actually have the the reading page number. Alan, sorry? 1217. Sorry, I'm uh, deaf in one ear and slightly deaf in the other just now, so if I'm shouting, it's not because I'm having a go at you. But, um, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, page 1217. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through Him you believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation." now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as alien and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Let's pray. Lord, this is Your Word. Help us to understand it and to apply it. We ask that we would realize the privilege of being able to worship You. We ask, O Lord, that each of us as we gather here this morning would know Your Holy Spirit present amongst us, that those of us who as yet do not know You, that we would be born again through Your Word, that imperishable, living, and enduring Word of God. O Lord, we are conscious of our own frailty and our own weakness, and we pray that You would help us to find our security and our joy and our peace in You. Give us ears that we may hear. Open our minds. Open our hearts. O Lord, forgive our sin. Draw near to us. We pray for any in our midst who have particular needs. Again, we lift up to You uh, Louise and her father and just ask uh, Your blessing to be upon them. We pray, O Lord, for every home where there is trouble and sickness, where there are financial concerns, where there are pressures and strains and tensions that come in because the devil always seeks to destroy what is good. We pray, O Lord, that You would uh, be with the new students who are here and uh, those who have perhaps with some apprehension come to study and are just finding their feet. We pray, O Lord, that You would protect and encourage each one. I want to pray especially for Craig Anderson, who's going into hospital for the next few days. I pray that uh, the tests that are being carried out on him would uh, show what is wrong. And I pray, O Lord, that You would grant healing and that You would grant him peace of mind and that he would be drawn close to You in that. Lord, whatever our particular needs, as we turn now to look at Your Word, may it be that it would be a word that speaks directly to each mind, heart, and soul here. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Now, let's turn to Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read the first six verses. Mark 6. And from verse 1. Jesus left there and went to His hometown accompanied by His disciples. When the Sabbath came, He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard Him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given Him that He even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't His sisters here with us? And they took offense at Him. Jesus said to them, Only in His hometown among His relatives... And in his own house is a prophet without honor, honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Okay, the story of Mark, in one sense, is the story of the Gospel of Mark, is the story of how many people rejected Jesus. We... Uh, may ask, why do people believe? Sometimes people will say that, David, why do you believe? But a question I often want to ask people is, why don't you believe? If, you're, if you were here and you're not a Christian, why don't you 
believe. And that's really something that we're going to look at in this. Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Strangers had opposed him and misunderstood him. Surely now, when he goes home, his own people would not reject him. The fact that they do reject him is part of the dark side that Mark wishes to tell us. In a chapter, back in chapter 3 and verse 6, Mark tells us about a pivotal event where the Pharisees and the Herodians, basically the religious and the political leaders, plot how they might kill Jesus. Here, we're told how his own people, his own community, plot or at least go against his teaching. You know, there's kind of a theory, and it goes like this, and lots of Christians believe this. Lots of Christians buy into this, which goes along the lines of people don't like the church, but they like Jesus. And if only we tell them about Jesus, then, and if only they get Jesus, then that will be it. And in a, there's an, in, a, in a sense, there's an element of truth in that. But I think I said this last week. It's really rubbish. People don't know Jesus. They like the idea of Jesus because Jesus is cool and Jesus is a hippie and Jesus is nice and, and so on. But actually, when people become confronted with Jesus Christ, I, I hope, as I'll show from this passage, the problem is primarily people reject Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They, they may say, oh, I don't like the church. But in reality, that often does tend to be an excuse. So, first of all, we're going to look at something uh, in terms of Jesus' teaching, His absolutely amazing teaching. He goes to the synagogue, and He begins to teach, and verse 2 says, many who heard Him were amazed. Now, they're amazed for different reasons. The word that's used is, if we were to translate into the real vernacular here, it would be, say, uh, Jesus knocked them out. It's like um, one of the elders, as I came in this morning, said, knock him dead, David. Well, actually, they didn't, but they should have, really, because that's what's being said here. Jesus went into the synagogue, he taught, and it just knocked them out. His, his teaching was just so phenomenal. Now, it, the reaction, as, as we'll see, wasn't entirely positive. What was the synagogue? Well, the synagogue was set up because the temple was too far away for people to go to. Its main purpose was to teach the law. It also had other purposes. It was a place of prayer and thanksgiving, a kind of elementary school. It was a study for the rabbi, and uh, they would meet and have services very often, but particularly on the Sabbath, on the Saturday. The order of service in a synagogue was as follows. There was the thanksgiving or blessing, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, would be said, the Shema. Then uh, there'd be a prayer, and the congregation would say, uh, Amen. And then uh, there'd be a reading of a passage from the Pentateuch uh, in Hebrew, followed by a translation in Aramaic. Then there would be a reading from the prophets, then a sermon or a word of exhortation, and then the benediction that was pronounced by a priest. Now, the sermon or the word of exhortation, that, this is, I wonder how we would cope with doing this. This was the one part of the service that was not prearranged. What would happen is that anyone present who was considered suitable by the ruler of the synagogue 
could deliver the sermon. I remember when a uh, famous, well for me, a very famous Scottish minister, Eric Alexander, first came to St. Peter's uh, on a, a Sunday before Christmas, and I saw him come in. My heart sank because he's a brilliant preacher, and I thought, oh. So I said, Mr. Alexander, uh, it is a free church custom that when a visiting minister comes, he does the sermon. And Mr. Alexander said, no, David, I have come to hear you. <laughs> and I said, oh, drat, that's what I thought. <laughs> but um, that actually, that is what would have, have happened, that you'd have gone into the synagogue, and if you're a man, of course, because no, no woman would be allowed to do it, if you're a man, if you were recognized as having uh, some kind of authority or you were known as some kind of teacher, then you would just be asked to deliver the sermon. And, of course, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and he begins to teach, and they are amazed at his teaching. The teaching was from Luke's gospel. We learn that it was from Isaiah chapter 61. We learn that he taught with power and authority. We learn that it was, it is, it's not an academic discourse. There is no indication at all. It was shouting or emotional manipulation. What it was, was it was the quiet authority of someone who knew what he was talking about or who knew the person he was talking about. It's been described in this way as inner conviction, freshness, intensity, and graciousness. Good Bible teaching is gracious, simple, and powerful. I love it when you hear the Word being expounded and you go, yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. That's what it means. It's so clear. Why didn't I see it before? That's why I love uh, on, on this machine here, on the um, the iPod or the iPhone, I, I love downloading sermons by people like Tim Keller because what I find quite amazing, I love listening to that kind of teaching because I go, ah, oh, yeah, it's so clear. It's so simple. It's so straightforward. It's so biblical. And I think uh, one of the things I'd ask for you to pray for myself or for anyone else who's involved in preaching uh, and teaching is that we would do that. We would teach God's Word, that we would teach it graciously, that we would teach it simply, that we would teach it powerfully. And that's what happened with Jesus. People came in and they were uh, astounded at what He said. You know, where did he, how did He do this? Verse 2, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? They were astonished at His miracles. The response is amazement and puzzlement. They think, but we know you. How can you teach like this? It's interesting. You see, when you know somebody, what a difference. Now, I'm going to give two personal illustrations, and uh, please forgive them, but you, you kind of appreciate you'll understand them in this way. I was uh, down in Borders in Cambridge speaking there, and it was a little bit bizarre because afterwards they asked people to, you know, if they wanted to get a signed copy of a book. So there's this huge queue of people wanting to get signed copies of my book, and it's really embarrassing. You have no idea how embarrassing I am. Well, someone was there who knew me. In fact, I'll name her, Kerry. Kerry was there, and she was just in stitches laughing. And she came up to me afterwards and said, Dave, this is hilarious. I said, well, I, said I know, but why, why is it hilarious? She said, you're David. And I said, I know. She says, it's crazy. They're all queuing up to get you to sign a book. That's mental. Well, she didn't say that, but along those kind of lines. And I completely understood that. You know, it was just so weird. Or another time I was speaking somewhere, and um, 
It was an American conference, and in one sense, uh, it was just a wee bit over the top, the introduction that you get, and I was being introduced to speak, and it was just, well, I think it was pretty well rubbish that was being said. And afterwards, the two guys I was staying with were two guys, free church ministers, who happened to be across at that conference as well. And one of them said, Dave, I just don't get this. How could he say all that? We know you. And I said, yeah, you've got it. That's exactly it. Now, in a, you, can, you can all appreciate that. You know, if you are, um, I'm sure some of you here are students and you're brilliant students and fantastic in your field, whatever it is, and you go away down to Cambridge or something and give a paper and everyone treats you as something really special, and you come back, especially to Scotland, this is what we do is, you know, and you're, you're, you, you give your paper in Scotland, people go, oh yeah, who does he think he is or who does she think she is? You know, if you make it in Scotland, the one thing that is guaranteed is that your own people will knock you down. You know, they really will. That's absolutely guaranteed. You know, the, um, I remember once some um, snow patrol were here in Dundee at the art college. I remember saying, oh yeah, they used to be in the art college. And one guy said, yeah, yeah, we knew them. They weren't that good. You know, it was just, you just, we just have that. Well, that is what is happening with Jesus, that, that, that they're saying, we know him. Isn't this the carpenter? This amazing teaching. Well, let's look at this amazing unbelief. What they're saying is, this man and it's slang. They're saying, this guy, it, it's almost contemptuous. We know this, we know this fellow. We know who he is. They knew his background. He's a carpenter. In uh, his, apolo- his apologia, Justin Martyr, in the year AD 155, said, that Jesus was in the habit of working as a carpenter among men, making plows and yokes. The word that's used is a word, uh, we we can't really translate it exactly. The word is tecton, the word that we use for technician, a craftsman, someone who brings forth an object, a craftsman who could build you everything from a rabbit hutch to a house. That was what Jesus was. Jesus was somebody who, if you went to him and you said, could you make us this? Could you fix this? Could you do this? I mean, we have uh, one or two people in our own congregation that you'd phone them up and you say, look, can you build me this? And they could. Uh, I'm not one of them. I am an anti-technon, okay? I can't, there is no way that I, I can't even build Lego, so it's not gonna, uh, I, I couldn't do that. In that sense, I'm definitely not like Jesus. Jesus could build walls, mend fences, repair gates, and so on. Now, here, it's being used as a term of contempt. Here's this man, he's in the synagogue, and he's teaching like a rabbi, but we know who he is. He's just a carpenter. He's just a technician. I love the idea, actually, maybe this is just going a bit far, but I love the idea, almost the irony, in that the God who created the universe comes to earth as a man who creates and builds things as well. Jesus, without whom nothing has been made, and here he is making things in a little village in Israel. But they're asking, how could a mere carpenter know about prophecy and theology? In Luke's gospel, it says, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Um, again, slight astray. Those of you who are new students here, you will have to study. It doesn't just happen like that. But Jesus was uh, in this ability, had this ability to teach from God's Word, and yet he just didn't fit the stereotype. They despised him because he was a working man. There's a kind of terrible sin of snobbery and disrespect. 
I actually love what Burns says, for all that and all that, their dignities and all that, the pithocents and pride of worth are higher rank than all that. But the contempt goes even further, because look at verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Mary's son. What's contemptuous about that? Because they don't mention his father. And in that culture, even though Joseph was dead at this point, not to mention the father was deeply contemptuous. You'd be known as the son of your father. And what's happening here is that they are stressing Mary because they're casting doubt on Jesus' parentage. And they're casting doubt on Jesus himself. Isn't this Mary's son? It's again been spoken of with contempt. The better informed we are, the greater responsibility we have. These people were well informed. They had a great responsibility. But they used the knowledge they had not to believe, but to reject. I think the best way to describe the reaction of these people to Jesus is the, the, well, the Scots phrase, I akent his father. You know, I know his people. I know who he is. He's nothing special. And that's exactly what happened. Now, let me broaden this out a little bit. One of the reasons that people do not believe is the narrowness of the criteria they use. Okay? A lot of people say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. And they'll say, I don't believe in Jesus because... And the because means that what they're doing is they're limiting the way that they look at things to a very, very narrow way. So people judge Jesus in this instance by their history, theology, tradition, experience, culture, and expectations. Instead of seeing the wider picture, what we end up doing is instead of being, seeing the wider picture and being judged by Him, we think we have the right to judge Him. I think there's considerable tension here. But the right thing is surely not for us to judge Jesus by other things, but to judge these things by Jesus. He is ultimately the only true fixed point. In other words, when you say, I was in Belfast this week, and a, uh, a man there kind of shouted out a comment. I think it, was, it wasn't really a question. You know, I, I don't want to believe in a God who would tell Abraham to sacrifice his son. So I and who would allow suffering in the world. So I talked to him about that a little bit, and he basically said, when I see God, I'm going to tell him this, and I'm going to ask him this. And I said, no, no. Let me tell you, sir, when you see God, you're going to say nothing. You're going to be struck dumb. You are not going to say a word because you are not in a position to judge God. You're not in a position to judge Jesus Christ. It is the supreme arrogance of human beings that we think that we have the right to judge Jesus. They ask, where did he get such wisdom? Mark has already indicated that he got it from the Holy Spirit. But they were offended. They took offense at him, verse 3. They were scandalized by Jesus. And that's where it comes in again. What is the biggest stumbling block to most people in terms of beliefs. It is the question of suffering, 
for many people. It is the behavior of the church for many people. It is the notion of the existence of God at all. But I think the biggest stumbling block of all is Jesus Christ Himself. At the end of the day, the reason that people do not believe is because you and I will say, we will not have this man to rule over us. We will not have him. So, let's then go on to look at Jesus's reaction. That's from verse 4 onwards. And look at verse 6. Jesus himself, he was amazed. They were amazed at his teaching. They were offended at his teaching. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. What was Jesus' reaction? First of all, he could not do any miracles there. Now, this is a, a phrase that's often misunderstood because the idea that people take is they say, there's Jesus and he's limited in power and it's really dependent on our faith whether Jesus can work. And the same, that same teaching, by the way, exists today and exists today in the cruelest possible form where a sick person is told, a dying person is told, if only you have enough faith, then you will get better. And the reason Jesus is not healing you is because of your lack of faith. Now, that is one of the cruelest misuses of the Bible that you can get. Was Jesus' power restricted here? Was it restricted by the lack of… Could Jesus suddenly not do anything? That appears what it seems to be saying. But that's not what it's saying. The Bible tells us the Word does not produce spiritual growth where the ground is choked, barren, or scorched. And likewise, Jesus did not work miracles where there was an atmosphere of total unbelief and resistance. It's not that Jesus could not do so. It was that He was limited from doing so, and in a sense, by a moral implication rather than uh, a limit of His own specific power. It's not as though Jesus is trying here. He's saying, oh, I'm going to work this miracle, I'm going to work this miracle, and then he can't. It's that unbelief limits the sphere in which he operates. Unbelief robs us of great blessing. Sinclair Ferguson says, where the kingdom of God is rejected, it is inappropriate for the king to share its new life and joy. Now, the other way of putting that is this. Jesus is not a machine. He is not a slot machine. He's not someone whom you say, I pray enough, I pray enough, I have enough faith, I have enough faith. Bing! Out comes the answer to my prayer. Jesus is personal, and He works in the context of relationships, and the miracles are performed in the context of those relationships. He is not, if you'll forgive the expression, our circus magician doing miracles for us as we please. And that was true then. Jesus did not do miracles there. He could not do any miracles there, except lay His hands on a few sick people and heal them. Why? Because the community as a whole rejected Him. I think that's just as true for us today. Sometimes, and God allows us to do this, sometimes we limit Jesus by our own actions, our own unbelief, and our own judgmentalism. Sometimes, You could be here this morning and you are unforgiven. The reason you're unforgiven, is it because Jesus doesn't have the power to forgive you? No. It's because you are not prepared to let it happen. It's not because of Jesus, but because of your lack of trust and faith in Him. Why don't you just ask Him? 
Just as there's the person who in their arrogance says, when I see God, I'm going to tell him this, or Jesus has to show me this in order for me to believe him. So there are people, even those of us who profess to be Christians, who we seek to manipulate God. And we we haven't got the humility or the grace just to come and ask. Now, that's why Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. And I think hurt as well. Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. Jesus was in the pulpit in the synagogue. And in the synagogue, the pulpit always faced towards Jerusalem. This is particularly poignant for Jesus. He's looking out over the people who are rejecting him, and he's facing towards Jerusalem, where again, as Andrew was telling the children, he was to be rejected ultimately. Rejected by his friends, rejected by his people, rejected by his family, and rejected by God for us. Jesus is not amazed at their lack of intelligence. He's not amazed at their ability or inability to understand. He is amazed at their lack of willingness to believe. Personally, more and more and more, the more I go on, the more I realize that unbelief is a matter of will and a matter of um, sin, really, rather than it is a matter of intelligence. It is not that people are walking around thinking, oh, if only I saw something more, or if only I had this, if only, then I would believe. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, when the rich man is in hell and he says, please let me go back to my brothers and tell them about this, he's told, they have Moses and the prophets If they don't believe them, they won't believe, supposing someone rises from the dead. It is always the case that lack of faith is something that stems not from a a huge amount of intelligence, but lack of faith stems from our own stubborn and sinful pride. So, what can we learn from this? Natural connections are not enough to bring faith. People say, if only... I'd been brought up in a Christian home, then I would believe. Is that true? No, it's not true. People say, if only I met Jesus Christ, I would believe. If only Jesus were here, I would believe. Is that true? No, it's not true. People do need to know about Jesus. How else can they have faith in Him? That's why in the next part, he goes on to send out the twelve. And the rest of Mark is really about this sending out in the context of Jesus suffering and dying. This rejected Jesus is still the one who is to be proclaimed. We need to tell people about Jesus because it is through, as we read in 1 Peter, it is through His Word, the Word that is about Him, that God works and God changes people's lives. I want to say just apply this a little bit more in terms of the not being able to do miracles because of the lack of faith. Let me apply that in terms of sermons and, and what we're doing here in worship. I don't believe that I alone, if you like, preach the sermon. I don't believe that what goes on here when we're being taught God's Word is somebody standing up and rabbiting on 
or even having prepared absolutely thoroughly and, and, and teaching, and, and you, in, in effect, are kind of spectators. Yeah, you're not a Christian. You've come here to observe what's going on to find out. You are a spectator. But if you are a Christian, you should not be a spectator. And what does that mean? What it means is that our worship is not just when we sing. Our worship is not just when we're praying. Our worship is not just when we feel that we are involved. We should be involved as we're listening to God's Word, because in a sense, congregations preach the sermon. In an atmosphere of expectancy, the poorest effort can catch fire. If the atmosphere is critical coldness or bland indifference, then there's little chance of there being any fire. Familiarity often breeds contempt. We undervalue things with which we are familiar. So you and I, many of us, are very familiar with the gospel story. We are familiar with the church. And I suspect that because of that familiarity, we do not value it. I met a lady this week, and we were talking, and she was asking me what. She was from a different culture. She said, what do you do? do?" And I said, well, I'm a teacher, and I'm a teacher of the Bible. And she said, wow, that's fantastic. I want to learn about the Bible. Just so strange. And yet, there are those of us who are Christians. Yeah, it's a bit boring, isn't it? The Bible, hearing a sermon in church. You know, the word sermon instantly puts into your head. Um, Maybe I shouldn't say this, but poor Emma Jane said, Dad, I need to borrow your iPod so I can listen to one of your sermons when I go to bed at night so I can go to sleep. Now, there are are some of us who that's what we think. There's there's an automatic default mode. I, I remember once sitting down in a pew, and you know this, I was wide awake until the guy started to speak, and within about 10 seconds, I was struggling with my eyes, you know, why is that? And I was thinking, oh, maybe I'm tired, maybe whatever. Uh, maybe I now understand why we have pews and not soft chairs, all these different kinds of things. But I think part of it was this. I was forgetting what it was. I was forgetting it's God's Word. I, I, was, I was thinking, you know, this should be amazing. This should be Christ communicating. This should be Christ speaking. Sometimes we're so familiar, we do not value it. Some of you here have had great privileges. This, the people in this town had great privileges. Jesus growing up in their midst. Oh, if only I had Jesus in my town, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. We, by the way, this is Nazareth. We have no indication at all that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth after this. After this rejection, we, there, there's no indication that he went back. Some of us have great privileges here. We have the Word of God. We have the Bible. I looked up this morning at a shelf. I have a shelf full of Bibles of all different translations, different things. I have the Word of God of so many books about the Bible and so much teaching about the Bible. And there's uh, Hugh and Brian talking about Burundi getting a, a, a small pack of three books for pastors in Burundi. We have great privileges. I, I, I want to stress, and it's kind of difficult because it sounds almost as though it's boasting about the church, and it's not. It's boasting about the Word of God. You're here in a church which teaches the Word of God and seeks to practice that Word. It would be dreadful 
if you had to wait until you left it, till you began to appreciate that. I, I don't know how many times I've received letters or emails from people who said, you know, we're, we're struggling to find a church where we are, where God's Word is taught in any depth. We need to take what we have, the gifts that God has given us, the tremendous resources that He has given us, and use it for His glory. Uh, in our, I'm, and I'm not talking about just the teaching from the pulpit and all that kind of stuff. There's a collective teaching that goes on. Uh, our, our fellowship group on Wednesday, I just thought it was great, and, and uh, the men's group one Monday had the same feeling, just thinking it's really good that we are learning and teaching one another from the Word. There are Christians, and this is what they're like, they look elsewhere. They look to the past. Oh, it was great in McShane's day. Now they were never around in McShane's day. They haven't a clue. Or, oh, it was wonderful at the time of the Reformation. Or it was wonderful in the New Testament. No, it wasn't. You haven't a clue. You're just looking in the dim and distant past. Um, what's the phrase? You glorify the past while the future dries up. But there are other Christians, and what they do is they say, it's wonderful in Africa. If only we could be like the church in Africa, or if only we could be like the church in Indonesia. And, and then you go to Africa, and you speak to missionaries in Africa, or people in this, and they start telling you how rubbish the church is. Or you go to Indonesia, or you go whatever. Because we always want to project and look over there, or back into the past there, and we don't see what we have now, which is not looking and saying everything's rosy in the garden, everything's wonderful but everything is not rosy in the garden over there or back in the past there. What we need to do is look at what God has given us here. Thank Him. In the words of the old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. Thank Him for the blessings and seek to make it better. Seek to develop and to grow with what we have. And I think the bottom line in all of this, and with this I will finish, is that like the people in Nazareth, we can open the door wide to Jesus or we can slam it in His face. That's really what it boils down to. And please, no more pathetic excuses about, oh, if only this door was open or if only that was given or if only this. It's our choice. It's your decision to be amazed at Jesus Christ or to despise Him. Are you... Let me ask you this question, if you're a Christian. Are you amazed at God's work here? Or are you so cynical and snobbish that you cannot believe that God would work through these people that you know? You can easily believe that God would work through flesh and blood that you don't know, but people that you do know, you can't believe that. Does Jesus look at you and does He look at me? And is He amazed at our lack of faith? He's working. He's working. And we're, we're going, Lord, why aren't you working? We don't believe it. For some of us, there is a deep-rooted cynicism, which is either something that's in our nature or more likely has been caused by hurt in the past, has been caused by false expectations which have fallen flat. And so, you know, the easiest way not to have your false expectations flattened is not to have any expectations at all. You expect nothing, you get nothing. You win. You've got what you expected. 
The easiest way to avoid someone hurting you is, is just don't trust them. Don't let them in. Don't let them near you. Don't let them have the power to hurt you. Just be cynical about everyone and everything. And oh yes, be Christian and thank the Lord who's distant and far away about other people who are distant and far away or about another era and moan to God, why is it not back in the days of so-and-so and so-and-so? Do that. But don't dare look at your brother and sister who you meet every day and say, Lord, I, th- I thank you for that person and for the work that you're doing in their life, even though they're as screwed up and messed up as me. I thank you for what you are doing. I do have a fear, and I think it's a legitimate fear based on this passage, and it's the fear that somehow I would grieve or quench the Holy Spirit and tell Jesus to go away because I'm not prepared to recognize His body. I'm not prepared to recognize what He's doing. I'm so absorbed in myself and my cynicism and my own personal hurts and and my own desires and my own agenda that that's what's going on. It's not a blind faith. It's not a stupid faith. It's not an ignorant faith. But it's a faith that exalts and rejoices in Jesus Christ. And it says that He can work in Nazareth, and that He can work in Dundee, that He can work in St. Peter's, that He can work in our lives, And that He can work through people whom we know and people who annoy us and people who hurt us and people who upset us. And we thank the Lord that He can do that because it means also then that He can work through us. I often ask, what do you think of Jesus Christ? I'm turning it around this time. I'm saying, what does He think of us? Is He amazed, surprised at our lack of faith. After all He's given, all He's done, all He's promised, all the blessings that we receive, why don't, why don't we believe? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You went back to Your hometown, that You went to Nazareth, that You sat there in the synagogue and taught the people that they were amazed, that there were some who responded, some who believed, some who were healed. But Lord, we share the wonder that people who lived with you, who saw you, who saw no sin in you, yet would not accept you, yet they rejected you. But our God, we cannot sit in judgment upon them because we too have experienced you at work in our lives. You have granted us your word. You have granted us your spirit. You have granted us your day. You have granted us your people. You have granted us great blessing in this church. You have granted us brothers and sisters from so many different parts of the country and of the world. You have answered prayer in so many ways. We have let you down, and you are still with us. We have wounded you, and yet you heal us. Lord, we moan and we whine and we complain to you, and yet you still respond to us. Lord, open our eyes that we can see. Any one of us here who doesn't know you, may we see your glory and your beauty and come to you. And those of us who do, 
Lord, help us not to reject Your work or to grieve Your Spirit or to quench the Holy Spirit because of unbelief. We do not want to be manipulated by charlatans and false teachers, but Lord our God, we just want to follow You and to know You, and we bless You that You promise that those who seek will find. Thank You for it. In your name, amen.